This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everyone, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And we're back, baby. We're back to talk about movies and other things, but mostly movies. How are you, Danielle? I'm doing well. I just ordered my annual underwear. Wait, annual underwear? (laughs) It's not what it sounds like. Like, I get one pair a year. Oh, okay, good. It's more like I decided years ago. I was done fucking around Uh and I'm only buying black cotton bikini underwear. I'm not buying like fucking this matches with that. I'm doing this style or that style. No, I am one style of underwear from this point forward. I decided like seven or eight years ago. So once a year, I just kind of when I first started, I just bought like 20 pairs of black underwear. And once a year I go through and I just like, you know, I update it. I'm like, do I need a few pairs? Yeah. So I just order the same old pair of black underwear it's great if it works for you just keep it going just fucking streamline this shit like i don't have time to be like impressing anybody with my underwear it's this is it it, the package is wrapped this is how it appears this is how i i come right like this is it black underwear whatever the fuck bra i can find this is it Do, do people really like go for matching underwear and bra i always feel like that's a little corny. Is that like a patriarchal Mom. thing that I've I've like kind of absorbed? It's possible. But also like I don't know. I feel like maybe for like a special occasion, if you're really feeling yourself, go to like Asian provocateur and get yourself a nice little set, but like every day matching bra and underwear? Also, what? I feel like yeah, and also buy that stuff if it feels good to you. I'm done trying to impress people with my underwear basically. Like, if you are the kind of person who, like, feels good in lingerie, knock yourself out. I feel like I'm being strangled by very weak <laughs> doilies. If you love it, knock yourself out. But I don't. So I'm just keeping it clean from here on out. I think a lot of this also is about sort of the options that are available to women who have large chests. Yes. That has always, like, so... It always felt like the cutesy wootsy bras were really for people that had smaller chests. And then anything that was over like a C cup meant that you had to go like more tactical yeah. and not cute. Going- so then you get into the like, you know, the actual hooks. And it like- just felt like more tactical and substantial it is it kind of deviated from the cute side of the spectrum and just got into like yes what is gonna hold them shits in place and i don't care how ugly it is oh yeah the, the names of the company say it all it's like the cute ones are like cosabella and the tactical ones are like maiden form 
<laughs> Keep this shit tight. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm fully on the search for, like, the fucking Janet Lee from Psycho Bras that are, like, huge and structured and, like, are not flimsy and dainty and made of, like, twigs. And it has to be, like, the raw materials have to be really good right like the way that they used to be in the 50s yes the raw materials were way more structured and hotter naturally but they were way more structured because it's like here is some burlap like here we're gonna put this between (laughs) the cushions of the bra so that we know it'll stand up on its own basically that's what I'm about. Because here's the other thing that gets me. Whenever I have targeted ads on Instagram and it's always a bra company that's like, we've disrupted the bra industry and we now cater to H cups. And then you go to the site and it's like, you're still 32 band. Like what is ha- like a 32 H? That's where we're at. That's what's revolutionary here. Come <laughs> back to me. goddamn dream. Exactly. Like, <laughs> please come back to me when you're hitting the 60s. Like when your bras are ready to retire. Those are the numbers I need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is that they say they go up to an H. But then when you get to the site, everything is sold out uh-huh. except for one bra. And it's usually in like. A, a tan color and it's the ugliest bra on the site it's the band-aid and bra it, yeah it's the one that they have in your actual size but if you're a 32a oh the world is yours yeah they get they yeah I, and i'm that's i think the part that really bothers me is that there's so many companies that are like we got you like we go up to plus size we go up to the big cup and then they're technically not lying because they do sell that band-aid bra but that's it It's like the one ugly band-aid color bra is it. Also, I have to tell you this story because I was talking. So, you know, our our friend Shalewa, who lives in New York, I'm on this like, I don't know if anybody, this might be an app for simply old people, but it's this app called Marco Polo, which is essentially like video text. I don't know how else to say it. Like, basically, it's like if you want to make a short little video for your friend and pass them back and forth for infinity. That's Marco Polo is your app. Um, I, the only people that I know on it are like me and my friends. So I'm not sure if it's like cool, but it's how I've been communicating through quarantine. Right. So we were on this Marco Polo group with like a bunch of other of our friends, but they were talking about. So I just ordered from Savage Fenty, which is the Rihanna's lingerie company. Okay. So there was a moment. Because I ordered this bralette, which, by the way, bralettes also a scam. <laughs> if you have any scam. heft, if you have any heft in your chest, everything gets swallowed, even <laughs> the let part of the bralette. It's a scam. Everything's riding up right into those creases. You can't get me on a bralette. The only time I'm in a bralette is truly when I'm like the hour before bed where I'm just like, I need to have something (laughs) holding them, but I'm not going anywhere because it's not a functional bra. No, it's not functional because the bralette part, like, you know, that band is not staying in place. It's not staying flat. It's basically like you just have a thicker band underneath because it all just rolls up. Yeah. And I, so I got this bralette that, okay, there's this disconnect that happens between what I think I can wear and look cute in and what I actually look cute in. Okay. And a lot of it is based on sort of looks and styles. So I was like on the, on the Savage Fancy website going, 
can I pull off this like butterfly rhinestone bralette? Okay. I have never fucked with rhinestones or butterflies in my wardrobe pretty much ever. Unless I was like at a costume party or if it was Halloween, I might throw a rhinestone in there. But it's not my everyday look. Butterflies especially are not my everyday look. I can't imagine a time where I ever wore a butterfly thing. And I include elementary school. I was going to say, I've seen pictures of you from when you were a little kid. Not even then. No, I I was dressing like a little boy anyway. (laughs) So it was like, I'm not never a butterfly gal. Never a butterfly gal. So I go on this website and I basically order this bralette that I was like, maybe I can pull that off. I don't know what look that is, but I'm young and I'm trendy. I'll, I'll buy it and see what happens. So I put this bralette on and this thing is real skimpy in the cup where I was like, this bra isn't small. Right. This is literally the look. The look is having three-fourths of your boobs sagging over the cup of this bralette. And I was like, this is a damn look, isn't it? I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm like, this is what they're doing now. I got no one, they don't even want coverage. It's literally just like two tiny triangles with butterflies and rhinestones on them. And then there's no, it's barely covering your nipple. And I'm going, this is a look. You got tricked into a trend. Yes, and I don't know this because I'm buying tactical 50s grandma bras. And then the minute I walk out of that, I'm like, no, this this is what the women are actually doing. They're wearing butterfly bralettes that are literally not doing a damn thing, but looking cute. That's I would it. be <laughs> furious if I opened that and tried to put that on my body and, and had that experience. Because again, with trends, this is where they always get me. This is the thing I'm trying to avoid. I don't wear your modern makeup because I don't want to look sweaty. And I'm not buying your modern bras <laughs> because I actually want my tits to stay in whatever I'm putting them in. I don't just want the discomfort of the straps with no support. <laughs> like, that's not where yeah. I'm at in my life. I was like, I can't even wear this laying around playing Animal Crossing. No. I don't know what this is. And so that's why I was like, get on the Marco Polo and I'm like, Shalewa, you're out there in these streets like you're a comic. You hang out with a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. Are the young people wearing these like skimpy, dimpy bralettes? And she's just like, yeah, I think so. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Return everything right now. And look, more power <laughs> to you, but fool me once. I'm not going down this road again. This is what's up. Get your black underwear for the year. Also do the same for your bras. I'm not fucking around anymore. I don't care. You've come out with the new revolutionary whatever. I'm not going to be around to find out. Again, I feel like the gift is not the wrapping. If you want the goods, (laughs) just you'll get whatever package they come in. That's not the gift. And if I'm doing it for myself, I'm basically wearing like a t-shirt with hooks on it. Listen, that style of buying underwear once a year and buying like 20 pairs of the same is my my dad has been doing this forever. <laughs> and I never understood that. I was like, why are you always like every time for Christmas, it's like, get me these socks, get me these t-shirts. And I want them like 10 to a pack. Mm-hmm. And they're always like some real basic like Gildan. You can get them on Amazon for like $7 or something. And it's just sort of like, 
He's what military. He's military though. Like he's like used to that, right? Yeah, that is. Yeah. I'm taking. I'm talking. Speaking of tactical underwear, I'm taking a militaristic viewpoint to my undergarments until the day I die. They will always be in good shape. I'm not about to have some raggedy underwear around or raggedy bras. They will be new and useful, but it will all be the same. You can take a picture of me right now. Take another picture of me when I'm 95, and you'll be like, "This bitch stays in a black bra and underwear." Yes, I do. Listen, it's timeless, especially in black. Like, it's just sort of like, you can't really tell if it's getting nasty in there. It's just sort of like a black bra. Like, you're like, oh, Oh, the only way I know it's truly old is if the hooks just fall off. Like, that's all I know. (laughs) It's getting nasty in there. I love it. Yeah, I'm like, I'm low maintenance. I have so much more going on in my life than having to take care of hand washing. Get out of here. I know. Oh, God. That fools me every time because... I'm a hand washer for like two weeks. And then mm-hmm. after that's over, it's all going in this. It's like one big load in the washing machine <laughs> with like a bunch of like towels and blankets. And oh, yeah. Jeans. It's going to come out wrapped around a towel. And like, like, please, I'm not hand washing a thing. I did get a lingerie bag, which is like a little net bag. Yeah, I have that, too. And even that I forget most of the time. Like, I just I can't. It's just let's low maintenance this out. Let's make low maintenance sexy. Like, let's make that the thing. Where it's like, oh, my God, you remember we used to wear those fucking triangle rhinestone butterfly shits? And then you're like, now look at us. And it's like a fucking bra up to your neck. With like, look yeah. at the neck. Look at the back. Let's make that the thing. Quite honestly, my closet is like that, though. If I look through my closet, I'm like, OK, I have the same four plaid flannels <laughs> and the same like jeans or black leggings and then something fucking insane that i bought (laughs) that i've never worn in my entire life and yeah it was the butterfly rhinestones effect it was literally like (laughs) me going oh shit like i could definitely wear that cute ass like wool jumpsuit with like 300 pockets and a zipper and a fanny pack that's built into the thing like some crazy stylish piece and it i buy it and then i kind of aspire to it for like two months and then i never touch it this is why i don't buy anything fancy or upscale i had to buy something to go to um the writers guild awards one year and i'm like Uh i don't own a suit like i don't own anything so i went out and bought like a blazer and a suit and a jumpsuit and a this and a that and i tried all this shit out and then i was like you know what for one day Maybe I'll buy a pair of like nice jeans. I'm wearing whatever fucking blazer I have. I'm not doing this shit anymore. I'm not buying special underwear for one outfit. I'm not going to look in my closet at stuff that I wore once or not at all. Like it's not how it is. My closet is so limited. I did prioritize in quarantine. I did this a couple weeks ago. I hung all my hoodies and moved them up on the shelf that I use the most. (laughs) Like I finally just gave up the ghost there. But yeah, I'm not doing it, man. I'm just not, I'm not about it. I hear you. I mean, especially now, especially like after so much time has passed where we just haven't had a reason to like put on a dress or any goddamn thing like that. So basically when I, you know, I was in LA, I moved out of my apartment and put all my stuff in storage because I was like, Things are weird right now. I really don't know when's the next time I'm coming back to this place. Right. So, like, let me just put all the stuff in storage and figure it out later. So, when I was going through my clothes, I was like, 
oh, what do I, I don't need to bring anything that is structured or isn't mm-hmm. sweatpants. I'm just going to put all of this stuff because I actually do have a few like dresses and stuff that I've worn yeah. for the film festival and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm just sort of like, you know, I have that stuff, but it's like, I just thought there's no reason for me to drive it across the country. I'll just pack it and see it. After the vaccine happens, right? <laughs> See you later. <laughs> but now I'm like, wow, like what? Am I ever going to wear a dress again? Like, right. Do I ever have to wear like pantyhose again? What? You know, I know I'm not it. putting on a pair of pumps. I'll just wear Crocs to right. fucking my wedding. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just crazy. <laughs> to your wedding. I, look, that's a look that you could absolutely rock and I will be there cheering you on the whole time. <laughs> we are not about it. I've got, I, I did go a little bit bonkers because I do like a, I don't love, like I'm not a shoe person per se. Hang on. All right. So basically they're like this, but they're like a yellow suede. Oh yeah. So I got a pair of those and I'm like, one day I'll wear those. That's fine. Cl- clog. Like a clog. Mary a clog. The rest of it, yep. it's all like, give me a Chelsea boot. I'm good. Give me a like one sandal, like one sandal <laughs> for everything. A neutral sure. sandal, a neutral boot. I'm good. Yeah. At this point right now, speaking of tactical, all my shoes are tactical. Yeah. I basically go to REI and just buy shoes. I don't even care what the event is. I'm like, I need them to be very comfortable. I need them to have like some kind of trail running slash comfort zone a comfort zone or whatever like in a shoe you know what i love i love looking at a shoe and saying could i outrun a bear in these (laughs) you would fucking know that's the shoe for me (laughs) could i outrun a horse that's trampling through my camp my camp yard (laughs) or a wily raccoon (laughs) i know it's like remember like i used to just wear flats from like old navy yeah when i was in high school or college and i'm like wow no comfort whatsoever no that must comfort, be crazy no arch support i mean arch support is where we start with a shoe give me some arch support and then we can talk about whatever's going on with the heel and the toe and all that shit i just can't i can't honestly i'm very like close to buying two bricks of memory foam and <laughs> duct taping them to my feet like i'll just be like a new howard hughes or something i'm just gonna wear <laughs> duct tape memory foam <laughs> oh, yeah, i'm close baby i'm real close oh man let's go to the mailbag before we just truly talk ourselves into never being able to leave the house again <laughs> because we're feral <laughs> <laughs> our mailbag is totally insane right now and it's because of the episode from two weeks ago where we talked about Jurassic Park with Stephen Ray Morris. That lit a fuse, baby. I mean, the emails have never flown in so solidly and like all day. It was a solid flow of emails all day for days. Well, like, what's the vibe of these emails, Daniel? Are they like, maybe read a couple of them and see if we can figure out what do people think about what genre? Well, Jurassic Park is in. <laughs> to their credit, and I gotta say, I'm in agreement with them. Stephen Ray Morris, our beautiful, lovely first guest, kind of dropped a bomb at the end that I don't think that we caught, which is that dinosaurs and humans did not live together at the same time, <laughs> which knocks that argument down to size instantly, right? Nips it in the bud. 
So most people were definitely saying, like Tammy, uh, she said definitely action adventure. Uh, Michelle said Jurassic. Michelle really went in. Loves a capitalization. Loves a capitalization. To make a point. Make that point. So she says (laughs) Jurassic Park takes place present day. Therefore, how is it historical? Most of us who have seen this film are likely still living. Next, I concur with Stephen. Dinosaurs and humans have never lived together at the same time. Again, how is this historical? (laughs) Michelle, on it. She's like, I just cannot support. Like, this is the only point you need. Understand how this argument is so easy. (laughs) So true. Oh, goodness. There's another one that is um, from Gabby. Gabby says, I agree that there are horrific elements, but so many movies use dashes of other genres to help strengthen the overall movie they are creating. I do not agree that it's historical, maybe as a sub tag or genre, but if I have to quick label it, it wouldn't be that. Okay. Honestly, when we read Shannon's letter initially on the show with Steven, we were talking it out. Okay. So we were presenting, we basically did the thing where you gather all the research, like all of the stuff, you know how like you're in grad school, they're like, gather all the research first and then do the evaluation once you get all of the, so we were talking it all out. Right. And so I guess there was a moment where we were like, yeah, maybe it could be, maybe it could be that. But then ultimately Stephen did provide the back to reality moment, which is that dinosaurs and humans did not live at the same time. So we would never know technically if it was history because we never were there for it. The only Correct. way we know it's history is because of fossils and, you know, scientific research or something. But we don't have one human on this earth that's like, I was there. They were cool. Um, <laughs> and also, I'm not even going to front. I did not know that because I grew up watching The Land of the Lost and I thought that humans and dinosaurs 100% chilled out together. <laughs> there's nothing pop culturally to prevent me from thinking that and i never like studied dinosaurs like i like the little bones in museums and stuff but i didn't look i don't know that leonardo dicaprio is italian i did not know that dinosaurs (laughs) and humans didn't exist at the same time i'm revealing my vulnerabilities to you every week and by the end of this series you're gonna realize i'm an idiot (laughs) you know for somebody that can quote Shakespeare and say <laughs> the states in 23 seconds. You think that maybe you would know something about dinosaurs and humans not existing at the same time? Not a fucking thing. That blew me away. Crazy. I was like, wait, maybe I should have clocked that earlier. We wouldn't even have this question on the show. <laughs> but so I guess now the point is, is that Shannon's fiance is super duper fucking wrong. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. like, she was like, I just can't even with that answer. And maybe she truly can't even. And now you have the backup and the proof that you don't even have to try to with that answer. <laughs> That's what I hope that this reinforces the fact that your fiance could not be more wrong and that I need to take a kindergarten course on dinosaurs, basically. So here's speaking of science. OK, mm. there was another part of that episode where a Apparently, I was in a podcast stupor, so I barely remember what we talked about, but I did mention TSS. Yes, you did. Which is toxic shock syndrome. And we questioned 
whether or not it had gone away because it was clearly a big moment for both of our childhoods in like the 80s and 90s, but then no one talks about it anymore. So our listener, Amanda, wrote in and she mentioned that right before COVID, she was at a doctor's office reading Prevention Magazine, which I also didn't realize was still around, but whatever. And she said there was a story in there about a woman who had toxic shock syndrome in the issue was from May of 2019 and she had both of her legs amputated. Yeah, it's a model, a model named Lauren Wasser. Oh, my God, that is crazy. Yeah. And then also, I mean, Amanda has a daughter and went home, apparently. The email goes on to say, you better believe that when I got home, there was a renewed discussion about tampons and making sure you're always changing them in a timely fashion. Oh, my God. No kidding. And now we know why. Also, I love the subject of this email. It's TSS and recipes. I know, because at the bottom of the email, what does she have? She has a recipe that was cut from a plastic bag of chocolate chips taped to (laughs) an index card. Oh, Amanda says, I clipped this motherfucker off the back of a chocolate chip bag about 20 years ago, and it is still in my recipe book. And Amanda, Mm -hmm. kudos. Because, Millie, you you needed that vote of support. You've been getting some shit from people about your your stance on recipes being necessary. She mentioned it was 20 years ago. I'm just saying it was 20 years ago. This is real. Today, you know, I would love to see somebody today clipping... (laughs) a plastic recipe from a bag and taping it to an index card. But obviously not staged for the internet. (laughs) I want somebody catching somebody in the act. If you're, if you, if if you have some kind of like TMZ footage of somebody clipping a recipe from a plastic bag, you can email us. Uh, I saw what you did pot at gmail.com because I would, I need that footage. I need, I need it. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of recipe talk, which is, Funny. This is like the second time that recipes have come up in this podcast because remember yeah. the turnip recipes? Yeah. People love cinnamon recipes. And there's a we have to shout this out finally. Because honestly, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. It's and the I, I greatest. Was, and this is coming from somebody who is not as much of an appreciator of the arts and crafts as Danielle is. So Danielle, why don't you reveal what Oh, one of our listeners sent one of our listeners, Hannah, who is so kind, sent a photo of a cross stitch that looks so gorgeous. We're going to post it on our Instagram account. It looks so beautiful. It is a floral motif. And Hannah stitched out very nicely. Carry a knife, cut his throat. <laughs> It is gorgeous. I want very, very kindly asked to send it to us. I think uh, Taryn is going to be in contact with you about that. But it is the nicest thing I've ever seen. I am a cross stitcher. I do cross stitch and knitting and crocheting and a bunch of fiber crafts. And I can tell you that this is a quality piece, y'all. This took some time and attention and care. And it is gorgeous. Yeah, it is awesome. So according to um, Hannah, the design credit goes to sassy stitch boutique and they're they're a big exactly right fan so that's awesome this is so nice i mean it looks like some rifle paper company like fancy design i mean it couldn't have taken five minutes is all i'm saying which is no 
I think yeah. that Hannah's been working on this since the first episode dropped. Like, it's been a months-long process, if I, I had to guess. It. But thank you so much. My grandmother is going to be thrilled. We are thrilled. And I genuinely cannot believe that her truly maniacal advice is hitting y'all so hard. I love it. I love it so much. But if you have an email for us, you can send it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And uh, we obviously read them on air and look at them all the time. So uh, we love talking and hearing from you. So do it. Should we get into our movies for the week? We should. So um, we're continuing on. This is the second week of our little uh, month-long spotlight on Black History Month. Tell them the, uh, the episode theme for this week. Our theme for this week is the L.A. Rebellion. Now, I have to admit, I think a lot of people, if you're like really into film, you've probably heard about this. I don't think it's actually like widely known yeah. in terms of the time and place of this in film history. And I think it's a shame, but I think that there's currently still people who are trying to give this a lot of emphasis and spotlight. Like there was a huge public exhibit in LA that was done with the Getty and UCLA. And it was part of this thing called Pacific Standard Time, which was basically this whole big art event that they were putting on about LA art um, or West Coast art. And that was the first time that I actually remember anybody doing an L.A. Rebellion themed exhibit right. uh, or anything. And that was in 2011. So it hasn't been that long to even have this be out there. But we wanted to talk about it because it's it's cool. It's important. And a lot of and filmmakers yeah. who are part of this group of people, I think, are now coming to some prominence or being known. But they've been making incredible, stunning, shocking, beautiful film since the 60s. So the LA Rebellion really is, it's a time and place in film history where basically like an influx of African-American and African students entered the like theater, film and television program at UCLA. And like Daniel said, it was starting kind of in the late 60s and it moved into the 70s and 80s. And there were students that were graduating and sort of mentoring other students but it includes filmmakers like Charles Burnett, Julie Dash, Larry Clark, Jamal Fanaka, Haile Grima, uh, Billy Woodbury. And these were filmmakers who were moving away from the genre aesthetics of exploitation, which basically for a while was kind of people's idea of black film. They were right. only seeing and hearing about Superfly, Shaft, you know, Dolomite, like that kind of stuff. And basically they kind of created a different way of kind of telling black stories. Right. Right. Is it true? Because I'm also like just learning recently about the L.A. Rebellion um, from recommendations from you, honestly. And in researching it, I, I was reading about the black independent movement. Is that the same thing where like it's kind of that mix of politics and culture and history and working class and like class conflict that was in response to like white Hollywood and, and black exploitation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all kind of coming together. I mean, it's also like post Watts riots mm. in Los Angeles. So it was just kind of like a very fertile time for activism and the rethinking of sort of where people were at 
uh, in the black community and sort of where people were at artistically within the black community. So I just think it was, you know, it's obviously late 60s, as you can imagine, the entire world was dealing with some kind of change, right? But yeah, this, I think it's, it's kind of all mixed in there. And like I said, I think it really wasn't until recently that anybody was really kind of doing the hard archiving and research work that it took to kind of track down a lot of the people that were involved in the LA rebellion, because a lot of them had been forgotten. I mean, when you think about student films that are made within universities, I mean, I made some and was in several. I have no idea where that shit is right now. I was in several. I love it. I know, right? It's like, think about that, right? Think about like what you did as a student, maybe, and you go, oh yeah, like that shit's not seeing the light of day. I, I doubt anybody has copies of these things. So that's what the archivists and historians are doing is trying to piece back together, like who was involved. And again, we're coming back to this problem of distribution, which is that, you know, I think some of the bigger directors in the LA Rebellion, obviously like Charles Burnett and Julie Dash, they were able to get some type of distribution um right. on home video but a lot of them still haven't including yeah. a lot of the early work from people so yeah it's um it's kind of like it's still going which is great but these, you know, these I are don't... still films that kind of need to be saved in order to be seen right when you think of all the different ways that people can self-distribute or all the different ways that people can now kind of create and put their own work out into the world, it's really shocking that we still have to do this for certain Black films or Black filmmakers or people who are, you know, in a minority group. Agreed. And like, basically, you know, when it comes down to like, who's out there distributing these movies? I mean, a lot of times these are companies that are kind of mom and pop boutique type of places themselves. Yeah. And a lot of them don't have a shit ton of money, certainly not studio money, mm-hmm. to put out physical media especially, but yeah, it's I'm excited to talk about these. Well, get let's get into it. I think you're first this week, so let's jump in. Ooh, I am first. Ooh, feeling the pressure. All right. So, well, my film this week then is a film from 1979. It is called Penitentiary and is directed by Jamal Finaka. Who the hell put you in my cell? You just fall. Been in the county jail six months. Your box? Not really. Why? Boxing tournament coming up. Big fun. You box? Hell no. Half dead don't box. I must begrudgingly report that we do have another movie about the prison industrial complex this week. And, um, you know, as we touched upon in the Bronson episode, so there's this entire history of prison films. I mean, even in the early days of movies, too. And there's so many branches at this point. I mean, there's like women's prison movies and there's, you know, like... Um, like Southern prison san- and Southern prisons, chain gangs, sanitariums. I mean, you could really, you know, I think ultimately what makes a topic like a prison fascinating to people and why people are still watching television and movies about prison 
is that it really is oftentimes seen as this other world. Like it's this brutal ecosystem of physical and sexual and like psychological violence. And there's this caste system or this pecking order that's established within the prison usually where, like we mentioned in the Bronson episode, being the strongest and the toughest is like a currency. And especially in this film for this week that I'm about to talk about, it's, it literally gets you your freedom. Being the toughest and strongest gets you your freedom. So uh, Penitentiary was made by the director, Jamal Fanaka. um, And this movie was made while he was still in school at UCLA. And it was not only the most commercially successful film of the L.A. Rebellion, but it was the most successful independent movie of the year that came out, which is 1979. So that's saying a lot. I mean, it made money and he ended up making two sequels to it. Um, The second one, I think I think it was Mr. T's first movie or it came out the same year as Rocky three. I'm not sure, but it was an early Mr. T vehicle. But I will say this, too. Like, I think that Jamal Fanaka he I think maybe unlike some of the other L.A. Rebellion filmmakers, he was actually fascinated by and wanted to make Hollywood movies. Like, I think that he wanted to make drama films that were entertaining. And, you know, what happened with Penitentiary is that it was successful and he did want to be successful as a director. But I also think people would see it and go, this seems like it's got the bones of an exploitation movie. Um, and a lot of exploitation movies are about prison, but I also think too, so it's taking a little bit from the exploitation genre or the black exploitation genre, but it's also got kind of, you know, it also has the bones of like the African-American independent cinema that was coming later, you know, the Spike Lee's and whatnot. So I think it's kind of like a perfect crossroads for both things. I was going to ask, like, who is Jamal Fanaka? Like, if you don't know him at all. Yeah. So ba- so basically, like, he was a um, he came from Mississippi. He was not born Jamal Fanaka. He adopted that name later in his career or like as he was going through school. He was a filmmaker that he I was introduced to him from a movie called Welcome Home, Brother Charles. And this movie called Emma May. Uh, which I think is also titled Black Sisters Revenge with Emma May. There was a female protagonist and it was sort of like he was just making really interesting work. And then when he did Penitentiary, like I mentioned before, that was kind of like, you know, his bigger movie. It had like more of a budget and he was doing it at school when he was using it was actually films in L.A. Some of the scenes that were in the yard were actually filmed at the back lot at UCLA, but it was it was filmed at a jail in L.A. And um, he was a part of the L.A. Rebellion group. Uh, He was in school with all of the filmmakers there. And did you know him like personally? I did, actually, because of buying his films for TCM or licensing his films at TCM. He sent me a message and was like, I'd love to talk to you. Like, I'm very, you know, pleased that you licensed this movie for Turner Classic Movies. And like, we developed kind of a friendship And he was such a lovely, kind man. Like, he was so sweet. He signed off all of his emails and all of his letters, friend for life, which is so sweet. And sometimes he would, like, abbreviate it. So it'd be like, 
FFL. I love it. BFFs, FFL. It's so cute. I'll do a little bit of a synopsis. So basically, Penitentiary is about this young black man named Martel Too Sweet Gordon. Gordon is what kills me. Gordon Gordon. slices me in two. It's so awesome. Um, But he's called Too Sweet because apparently he loves Mr. Good Bars, which good for him. I think Mr. Good Bar is nasty, but you know. Look, we each have our own special candy <laughs> yeah i mean i still eat whatchamacallits whenever i see them so who am i to judge? they still make whatchamacallits can you believe it i can't i truly can't believe it <laughs> i have not seen one since 1986 <laughs> i think me and my sister are the only people eating whatchamacallits in 2021 and so at the beginning of the movie he's just like wandering through the desert and he finds himself in this altercation at a diner with these two white biker guys and he is defending this woman who's just picked him up and um they get into a big fight and a murder happens and he is arrested and sent to jail he did not commit the murder i will say he was just in the fight so there you go so basically the film is about him being in jail and all the prisoners that he he um interacts with the thing is is that he has he figures out pretty quickly that he has to assert his toughness in the jail and he does so because he has like zero body fat on his body uh and is rippling with muscles it's almost too distracting sometimes he looks like, like those damn. those posters where um have you ever seen those posters where they hang up in like martial arts classes where the guy has his arm in an l and then the other arm is kind of down to his side and he's raising his leg it's just to show the musculature i know he's like a musculature model yeah he's basically that he's like the vitruvian man or whatever like he's just <laughs> like look at my muscles every single moment of his life yeah it makes me go how what must it be like to be that toned i'm like i honestly can't imagine i can't imagine being that fit so what happens in in penitentiary is that he finds out that there's a boxing program within the prison where the warden offers parole for the winner of this boxing match now honestly would that ever happen in real life not a chance also, there's Parole. such like there's such slave master energy coming from this because it's like this white Southern dude who's the warden and he's paroling these boxers to his brother to like make money off of or brother-in-law. And it's just like there's such the dynamic of the, the master slave is is too much. It's too much in this movie. <laughs> oh, my God. This warden is insane. I actually don't even know if he's the warden or just this police lieutenant. I can't figure it out. And he's constantly chomping on a cigar. But you're totally right, where you're just basically like, there's some weirdness here, honestly, as we probably would know now, knowing what we know about L.A. Rebellion is probably on purpose, right, to show that. You know? That's what I love is that it's a whole genre that's turning the narrative of film on its head. So it makes sense that the people who would normally, um, you know, tell these stories would tell it from the perspective of the people in charge. <laughs> and here yes. we have a bunch of filmmakers saying, no, we're going to tell this story from the other side. Yeah. Isn't it interesting when a black filmmaker tackles the subject of black people in prison? Having that simple adjustment, I think, makes it a different story. Completely. In my opinion. But I all got to say, there's a lot of stuff happening in this jail that I'm like, 
would that ever happen? Including there, there's like a full on band that's playing with instruments <laughs> in the yard. And I'm like, would that happen? Like, how do they sneak in a stack amp? I don't there's understand. A full band, break dancers, <laughs> color coordinated <laughs> basketball outfits. You've got guards walking around in three inch stacked heel boots. I mean, this <laughs> prison, it's like. <laughs> This is like the porkies of prisons. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I know this is L.A. and they do things a little differently on the West Coast. But Jesus Christ, there's a full band. There's no uniforms. It's like there's some dudes in just like a bucket hat and it's like their street clothes. And they've been there for like 20 years. And you're like, how did you get new street clothes from Sears? You've been yeah. in here for like a minute. <laughs> I know. There's something else that happens later in the movie that I have to talk about, which I also think is so outrageous. So the other prisoners in this jail are also indoctrinated, right, into this boxing program, including Too Sweet and including this new prisoner named Eugene, who's this like young guy. And he falls into a bad spot pretty quickly. And you know, because of this, I think Too Sweet begins to kind of look after him like he's a big brother. And they end up being kind of coached by this much older prisoner named Seldom Seen. And he's been in the jail for like 30 years. He himself understands that he is institutionalized, as he says in the movie. He's just been in jail for so long that he doesn't know how to be free. Right. And his scenes are some of my absolute favorite in the movie, just like him talking, him kind of you know, laying down the rules to Too Sweet when he enters into his, you know, jail cell. He's like, don't touch my stuff. Like, yeah. don't talk to me about anything that you do. Like, I leave me alone. Like, I'm, I've been in here for a long time and I know how to be in here. So don't ruin my fucking day. That's ever. basically how I am in quarantine. <laughs> I know how to be in this apartment. Don't come in here and fuck my shit up. Exactly. Like Don't be dropping guy. packages at my door. You better like say six feet away. <laughs> yeah. So true. But then, of course, you've got the ultimate bad guy named Jesse Amos. And he's the toughest guy in the jail. And he kind of runs the goon squad of the jail. And he's kind of like the final boss of the movie for Too Sweet. So you have all these different characters. And in terms of the actual fighting sequences, man, they are long and brutal. And they are like fight scenes like I have never seen because you can tell uh, that they're tired yeah. <laughs> in real life. So the thing that's interesting about these scenes, too, first of all, I was actually convinced in a lot of moments that they were really hitting each other. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, I don't know how to. Honestly, I know that's movie magic. I don't know how to pretend to fight, but Neither. it happens every day. There's lots of stunt coordinators that work very hard to make this shit look real. But I'm like, yo, this shit looks real. Didn't look like they were like play acting. But the thing that is happening during these scenes, because they're very long and they're brutal. And there's also kind of like, I'll just tell you this right now. <laughs> this is another possibly unlikely turn in this movie but the warden offers the prisoners that fight in this boxing match he tells them hey i'm gonna go down to the women's prison down the street and bring in women for you to watch you box and cheer you on and cheer you on okay would that happen i'm not entirely sure no it would not happen (laughs) but in this movie it is fucking absolute chaos like everyone in the crowd is going 
insane. There's like two cops trying to wrangle everybody together. It's the desperation of it because you know that they're, this is their entertainment for the year. Like this, yes. this is it. Like you get that sense of desperation so much in this scene. But it also what was interesting to me about this scene or these scenes, I should say, because there's more than one boxing scene. Um, and what's really fascinating to me is that they, the warden also offered up the chance for the winners to have conjugal visits. And there's also like this whole bathroom thing going on where people are like having sex and sneaking in and dropping out of the ceiling and hiding. And and again, I'm not the first person to point this out, but it is interesting to me that even within the spirit of we are doing something revolutionary and we are making a film that is outside of the bounds of what you typically know, that misogyny is still rampant. Like it's still like women are still an afterthought. So as revolutionary as some of these genres are and these films are, I'm still always looking at how women are treated within them. And it's usually not as revolutionary as the rest of the film is. Well, sure. And there's there's a lot of homophobia and transphobia in this movie, too, um, which is not great. And, you know, again, I think it comes from the time which it was made and also the idea that it is still tied to an exploitation tradition. Right. 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 And for better or for worse, there are filmmakers that were making films that that was kind of their reference point. And also, I think, too, the general demands of cinema to be profitable, to be popular, include violence and sex. Right. Right. And that's what I think is ultimately happening here is that you're seeing these two things being intercut. So you have these scenes where there is violence and sex happening at the same time. Right. And that to me is an interesting tactic. I mean, I'm just sitting here going like, you know, to put them together. Obviously, there's something behind that. But you're right. I think that there is some misogyny in this movie also in terms of the woman that Too Sweet gets involved with. These are things that you look at from a long lens and go, man, that's crazy. Yeah. And Um, it doesn't take away from the movie. I just think it's like, it just stands out to me, even in in my film. Like, it just stands out to me where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is revolutionary in so many ways, except or and, you know, this it really reminded me of um, like reading, you know, Asada Shakur or a lot of people who are involved with the Black Panthers. Uh, There are definitely some essays and quite a few women who wrote about the domestic abuse they suffered in in that space. And it's like, yeah, Uh they were changing lives and promoting the liberation of Black people, but women still suffered within that model. So it's just kind of like, I just always think about that because I can't help it. Well, what's really interesting, though, and to your point, is that Jamal Fanaka, I'll say this about him as a director. First of all, he was one of the few Black directors that were in the Directors Guild. And in the early 90s, he was really taking them to task about a lot of their practices, which he felt were discriminatory against women and people of color, right? So he was filing all these class action lawsuits and he was funding and drafting them himself. And, you know, I think that he felt, and we never talked about this just because we just didn't have that type of friendship. We were friends for life, but we didn't talk about some of this kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) You know, but um, I think though that there's a notion that maybe his legacy was sort of tarnished by this idea that he was 
some litigious, cranky guy who wanted to stir up trouble in Hollywood really? and was trying trying to go through and call people out on their bullshit. And I mean, we've we have heard about something like this before. Like this happens yeah. a lot with like whistleblower types. And it's a shame because, you know, I think that he felt like his career suffered because of it because he was ca- calling all of this stuff into question. But it's also interesting that he, you know, that maybe time was the thing that maybe he didn't realize that in 1979, as he right. was making a movie that had these kind of misogynist and homophobic and, um, you know, kind of otherwise kind of gnarly tones. But then like later kind of came back and was advocating for people. You know, it's interesting, you know. Yeah. And I think that it's it's true that it's it's far too often people who are already marginalized, who are standing up for other people who do suffer the most. It was probably easy to categorize him as a shit stirrer or as somebody who was hard to deal with or difficult in some way because he's already making films that were like, I'm not playing your game. So I can yeah. totally understand that. And that's a, it's sincerely a tragedy that that happens to so many creators and black creators in particular. But I get it. Like, I see how that is probably, again, it made it easy for people who were already dismissive of him as a creator to continue to dismiss him. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, he made the two sequels and, you know, didn't really do a ton after that. And the timing is right, I think, based on you know, just the information that we have about what he was doing at the Directors Guild. So his legacy, I think now is different. I think that people are especially looking back at like MMA and Welcome Home Brother Charles and that early stuff and really like looking at him as an auteur, which is great because we that's the thing that we want is we want spotlights on black auteurs. So but I will say in closing, (laughs) I don't know if I've seen this Recently, I could be wrong because I'm also, again, not in these like young people areas, but Too Sweet at one point is boxing in tiny, tiny track shorts over a pair of sweatpants. Yes. That was very common in the 70s and 80s. Yes. I'm like, can we bring back that look? We can. Literally, you and me can. We would have to. I don't know if I have those shorts, but I definitely have the sweatpants. So we would have to be the vanguard of that movement. <laughs> it is a sick look and the shot, the sock showing. Yes. I love that. I love a sweatpant with a, a sock that is just there. Like we're not doing it with a cute shoe or a sock. <laughs> nope. It is a sweatpant and you're going to get a sweat sock and you're going to get over it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, I'm glad you picked this because I'd never seen it. And I would have thought on first look that it was a black exploitation film or it was in yeah. that genre. And it's so, de- so much deeper and so much more. And I really I just could really see and appreciate the way that these characters were designed to be more thoughtful and to be funny. Like there's a lot yeah. of humor in this film as well, which I think when people are trying to make such a, you know, sometimes when filmmakers are trying to make such a hefty point, they forget that you can be human and you can be yeah. funny. So that I really loved the sense of humor. And I loved like there was one point where um, like the, we're, if we're bringing back the sweatpants and the shorts look, we also have to bring back the word suck as a, <laughs> something to end a sentence. So there was this one point where this guy was like, who are you talking to, suck? And I'm like, yes. Yes, we are calling people suck again. That is what's happening. <laughs> I 
<laughs> oh god who are you talking to so suck. on board i'm so on board with that i'm so on board with that i yeah. just loved it and then so there was another character it might have been amos who said um like run it to me right instead of like just basically like tell me what's going on run it to me right yeah. i'm like i would bring back this lingo in a heart but suck is happening i'm calling everyone suck from here on out my grandma my fucking boss like everyone <laughs> Uh, I will welcome that term with open arms. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My film this week, uh, released in 1990, is called To Sleep With Anger, and it was written and directed by Charles Burnett. To Sleep With Anger. It's a film about old friends. Must be 30 years or more. So a brief synopsis of this film before we get into talking about what the movie is and who Charles Burnett is. This is a movie about a South Central Los Angeles family who has roots in the rural South. Mom and dad are from the South. And they get a surprise visit from an old friend named Harry, who's played by Danny Glover. And look, anytime Danny Glover is in suspenders, watch out. <laughs> There is nothing good coming. <laughs> Throw a bow tie in there and you might as well hand him a, mach- a machete. Like, it is not Forget good. <laughs> so Harry shows up in his suspenders. They have not seen him in decades, but it's very rural, like, southern hospitality. And they mm. invite him in, vampire style. And what happens? That's right. All hell breaks loose. Um, yep. Charles Burnett has these themes that he plays on in a lot of his films about family and folklore. Um, and this is... Certainly one of them. So this movie, To Sleep With Anger, it won four Independent Spirit Awards for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Male Lead for Danny Glover, and Best Supporting Female Lead for Cheryl Lee Ralph. Charles Burnett won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Screenplay and also the Special Jury Prize at Sundance in 1990. And what's really cool is that this is not Burnett's first film, as we talked about before. We're not doing any first films for this episode. Um, But Burnett, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1988. And when you win those, they give you $250,000, like doled out over five years. And he used that grant to help support his family while he worked on this film. So it's still that very like independent spirit kind of (laughs) that he's bringing to his films, even though this was one of his first big budget kind of movies, right? I wouldn't even say big budget, but like wide release movies. Yeah. And, you know, Danny Glover was already a star at that point. So it had Cheryl Lee Ralph was a star at that point. It had some real energy, like Mary Alice, some great actors who were already established. Um, yeah. You also see in this film a little appearance by Raina King, Regina King's Raina! sister from Scrooge. Second <laughs> mention of Raina. <laughs> we get Raina King on this show. We got a lot of questions. Let's get Raina King and Mabel on. Well, Mabel sadly passed away, but yeah, I just love that she keeps coming up. She's got a good, a deep bench, that one. So Charles Burnett, 
He attended the Los Angeles City College to be an electrician. Uh, that was his, his goal. And then he took a writing class and was like, uh, nope. So he actually went on to earn a BA in writing and languages from UCLA. And he got his MFA in theater, arts and film. And some of his classmates include Julie Dash and Larry Clark. Um, there's actually a really good video Basically, if you go on YouTube, there's a video called Creative Process in Dialogue, and it's Charles Burnett, Julie Dash, and Radford Young talking for about an hour and a half together at um, Bard College, and it's really, really interesting. One thing I love about Charles Burnett, I read in an article that came from Wikipedia. Yep, I linked from Wikipedia. I did it again. Take my degrees and burn them to the ground. Um, he, he said he was reluctant to leave college because making a movie in college is so cheap. And he had access to like the cameras and tools. Yes. I love it. But he did eventually leave college. He won a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1981. After This is after his first movie, um, Killer of Sheep, came out. And, um, and again, like he's a big player in this L.A. Rebellion movement because so much of his films are rooted in this mix of politics and class conflict and culture and magic and, you know, kind of rural Southern Black roots, because he's from Vicksburg, Mississippi, to present day modern Black families. And it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. He's alive. He's 76. <laughs> um, he's still doing great work and just very interesting. He's had a very interesting career and life. And I think I picked this film because this is one of those movies that I've only seen like one and a half times. But when I first saw it, and I like to go back and check myself in this way. When I first saw it, because this came out in 1990, this is one of those movies that like my grandmother would have rented and put on on like a Sunday afternoon. And I would have started watching it and thought like, what is this? Like, this is just old people from the South talking. Like, I didn't have any appreciation for, like, my own history at that point. And so I loved watching it with such an intentional lens this time. And I love watching it and kind of remembering some scenes, but not being able to place them because I never watched, you know, I watched it fleetingly in the background while I was hanging out with my grandma when I was, like, 15. It's a fantastic film. Top to bottom. It does that kind of like when a stranger calls trope, but it turns it into something so much more sinister because it is so much more subtle. So I really love I really love that. Um, you know, Harry, again, Danny Glover, he really plays this kind of like smooth talking evil dude who just way overstays his welcome and is kind of the catalyst for this this family that's already having some strife. You know, like they have, you know, these two sons and you know how families do. Like one son is kind of considered the harder working son and the other one's lazy. And, you know, one daughter-in-law is favored over the other. Um, so there's already this kind of strife about them. Like, you know, they have grandkids and it's about, you know, who's taking care of the grandkids. And Danny Glover's character, Harry, just kind of exacerbates that with his presence. And he kind of it becomes this interesting mix of like, again, that magic and folklore sort of storytelling because he has a very hidden and complicated history uh, that we eventually start teasing out over the shape of the movie. But it, you kind of it, it's very intentional that he is the reason why all these bad things start happening to this family and why, why all this emotional stuff comes to the surface. So I kind of just I don't know, I just kind of I loved it. Like I love, first of all, looking at 
things like, you know, like remembering that 80s, 80s and 90s parents will yell right in front of you. Like they will have a fight and you will see it. <laughs> and they're like, we don't care. We'll fight about you. We'll talk about child raising in front of the child. Like they will just fight in front of you. But I think that it was very <laughs> like, I don't know. I kind of I love the structure of this being about country folks living in the middle of an inner city. Yeah. I love the structure of using like these old Southern kind of platitudes. Like, you know, your your heart is in your left hand is as an insult. You know, the very genteel um, manners and the way of speaking to people that mm-hmm. I think the parents in the film, Gideon, who's played by Paul Butler and Susie, played by Mary Alice, were trying to instill in their kids. But you realize like their kids weren't raised in the same town they were raised in. So you yeah. can raise children with your values but the geography of it matters so all these little things and I think that one thing that was really fascinating to me and that I really loved a lot is that when Harry appears all of a sudden like all these old friends start crawling out of the woodwork oh yeah and they are some nasty there are some nasty customers in there there are some hilarious customers in there but it is just wild what he brings out in people and what comes out of this group of people because of his appearance. Um, And I'm particularly thinking about Hattie, who is a woman that he just kind of terrorizes. Like she's an older woman who's been saved. She's a church going lady now. And he keeps bringing up the fact that she was a sex worker. Her mother was a sex worker. Like she used to sing these body songs to the point where Hattie at one point looks at Susie and is like, he is evil. You should poison him. Peace. Like she's just straight (laughs) up like, there's nothing good about this dude. Whenever he's around, people start dying. Like get rid of this motherfucker. She is on it. Hattie is not entertaining him for a second. Um, yeah. I like movies where they really talk about like seeing seeing black families in a non-monolithic structure is always interesting to me. These are middle class people. You know, Susie is a, a midwife. They get the feeling that Gideon is like retired. They have a beautiful house. They have like a real life together. Their kids are all kind of upwardly mobile, <laughs> I guess you would say in that 80s, 90s way. But they're really relying on that friction of, or Burnett, I should say, is really relying on that friction between what we know and where we come from versus where we are. I I mean, I have to say, like, this is a first time watch for me. I immensely enjoyed it. I loved it so much. And, you know, part of what I think is interesting about the Southern platitudes, a lot of religious, you know, sort of allegorical, because honestly, when it comes down to it, if you think about the story in terms of that as a an allegory, it seems that like Danny Glover is like the serpent yes. in the Garden of Eden, right? He's the one that comes in and disrupts this entire family and everybody's great. They're raising chickens. They've got, you know, every, every it's a peaceful existence. And then here comes this motherfucker to <laughs> disrupt it. <laughs> and it's interesting because he kind of takes baby brother i think that's his nickname yeah. in the movie babe brother um, he's kind of the 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 one you spoke of earlier where he's the the one that's not doing so great and he is kind of hypnotized by this danny glover character and he starts kind of going in these bad directions and that's what i think is really interesting about just the structure of the movie is it kind of presents that this whole saga is biblical it feels biblical as part of the folklore or the as the storytelling device that charles burnett's using so i mean i absolutely loved it i mean there's so much like 
old wisdom in there about like leaving the leaves by the feet yes. to reduce a fever. I mean, I was like, wow, this is real old school Southern, like Foxfire type of stuff. It was just like cradling a, a bottle of moonshine <laughs> or corn liquor, as they call it, corn just liquor. wrapping it in a blanket like a baby and cradling it. Like there's just so, it's so fun having like a fish fry and yeah. I just I really dug it because it wasn't cloying at all. And it was very much, you know, this is a reality of family and lineage. And, you know, how do you respect both and live in both? Like, how do you straddle that world when how you were raised and what your upbringing is is in direct opposition to where you're living and what you're living with and how you're trying to raise people. I loved it. I had a little bit of trauma when I saw that kid in the in the checkered van struggling to play horn. Um, <laughs> whew, brought me back to my days when I was in drum corps playing the baritone, trying to oh, practice boy. out back. It was not healthy. Um, <laughs> I have to tell you, I I loved. Mary Alice in this movie. She was my favorite character. I cackled when I heard this. One of Danny Glover's weird friends that comes over is this older man who is like, clearly he won't stop hitting on the Mary Alice character, even though she's married. And when Gideon suddenly becomes ill and he's upstairs, this guy comes to her kitchen table, sits her down and says, listen, let me just tell you, if something were to happen to your husband upstairs, like, you're going to have to remarry because you you can't be by yourself. You're going to need somebody to come in here and like help you with this house. And I'm just saying, let it be me. I will do it for you. And he's like much older than her. And he's like part of this like creepy group of like weirdos that's hanging out with Danny Glover character. And Mary Alice has the best line. And basically she just simply just looks at him and just goes, excuse me. I have to go feed my dog. <laughs> and it was like, and he's just, it's over. And the funniest part is that I actually, I was like, I want that as my ringtone. And I went on Twitter and I was like, can somebody make me that ringtone? And somebody made it a ringtone. <gasps> I was like, so now I have that on my phone. Anytime I just want to like end a conversation, I'm just going to press the button. <laughs> Cry, <laughs> fucking cracked up when she said that because um, there were there was so many like funny parts to this movie too just about the whole ending i won't give it away but it is very like oh it is hilarious so funny the way that harry leaves their life is very funny <laughs> and i got to say like between these two movies that we picked this week, you know, they're 11 years apart and they're different. They're right. they're from the same place, but they're different completely. And a real, I think a really good way to start into that genre. If you're interested in L.A. Rebellion, these are two incredible filmmakers to start with. Julie Dash is also a great filmmaker to start with. But yeah, like they do run the gamut. And I, I love both of these movies a lot. A lot of it is on physical media. So you're, you're going to probably have to be buying like DVDs and Blu-rays because um, they're not they don't really pop up online a lot. Maybe sometimes like a smaller like a smaller um, streaming channel, like a canopy or Criterion Channel or something like that will have them once in a while. But yeah, for the most part, you they'll have to be something you'll have to physically put into a DVD player. So um, and it's worth just be it. Prepared, but it's worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Um, that was great. That was great. Do you want to do the um, next week's movies? 
Yeah. Um, so Millie, yeah. as we as we continue our Black History Month celebration, um, what are our movies next week? Well, I will say one of them is pretty recent. Um, the movies for next week are Shame from 2011 and Lover's Rock from 2020. Guess the theme. And the theme is not the director. Guess the theme. <laughs> Wait, let me cut that out. Let me cut because that is the director. The theme is not just the director's name, if you know who it is. And where can people find us if they want to look at our incredibly cool social media pages or write us an email showing off their cross stitch? Uh, if you want to send pictures of your arts and crafts, um, send them to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at I saw pod. And just to, you know, just to like light a little bit of a fuse, Danielle and I are actually thinking about maybe doing some um, Instagram lives. So if that's something that you think you'd be interested in, let us know. Uh, we're, we're like, you know, we're at that point in age too, where I'm like, God, is there like a new functionality to all these apps? I don't know. Do people like do Instagram? Is it a TikTok? I don't know if I want to make a TikTok video. I'll just oh, say that. I am not joining TikTok for this pod. Look, I love you and I love this podcast. I'm not joining TikTok for anything. <laughs> You cannot get me on TikTok. I have too much work to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, I don't even have it. I don't even know what it is except for, you know, just what people are saying. So, yeah, yeah, we will probably be on TikTok, but we might do an Insta IG live. So yeah, you know. we can figure out IG live. We're both on Instagram. We can figure that part. out. I think it's just pressing a button at the yeah. same time. Maybe hey, I saw I saw a 75 year old woman do it the other day. So I feel I feel like we could figure that out. So um, let's get her tech person. <laughs> <laughs> Call her up. Who's your grandson? Help us out. <laughs> Wait, let me take that back. Who's your grandchild? Help us out. <laughs> yeah, we need all the help we can get. But until <sighs> next week, thanks for listening. We As really well. appreciate all the feedback. You guys are the best. We love you. We yep. love you. See you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at iSawPod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Listen.